Today's episode of Your Stories is sponsored by Cards Against Humanity. They asked us not to read an ad, so enjoy the show! Your Stories is a wonderful opportunity to share all the highs and lows of being a nerd. You know that hobby you have that you don't talk to anyone about? It's a secret you don't like to share because it might make you feel weird. Maybe you're into something different. Uh, comic books, fantasy football, push-ups. Your Stories, to me, has been this really kind and welcoming space where people just have the guts to be really honest and they share their voices and their stories with everyone there, no questions asked. Uh, I've heard stories about all those things. Uh, maybe not not a lot of push-ups. I maybe haven't heard a lot of stories about push-ups. The Nerdalogs is group therapy meets Toastmasters. I know there's always a place where my odd thoughts and unusual habits will be welcomed and championed in a warm, supportive environment by other nerds just like me. And what's fun is you'll see people in the audience one month, and then all of a sudden they uh, go up and tell their story. So your story becomes their story, and their story is your story, and then it's our story, and then it's a podcast, so it's everybody's story, and then you've shared it, and gosh, that's great, huh? And even if you don't think you're a nerd, you probably are. It's easily the most Midwestern thing I've ever been a part of. Hey everybody, I'm Eric Arnault, and this is part two of the Nerdalogs Presents Your Stories podcast, based on the theme A Night with the Stars, and featuring some of our very wonderful friends in Improvised Star Trek, as well as a number of other great storytellers and guests. Uh, this episode we've got IST's Sean Kelly, Dan Granada, and Matt Young, as well as the wonderful Natasha Samrani, Abby H., and Eileen Tall, plus the usual music from myself, Dwight Hassler, and Claire Friedman. Uh, speaking of Improvised Star Trek, we're doing a special mini-Your Stories opening for their show at I.O. this Friday at 10.30 p.m. Uh, so come on out to see a few nerds and a special guest, tell more stories and sing more songs, then stick around for a fantastic episode of Star Trek Improvised Before Your Very Eyes, because that is what Improvised Star Trek does, and they are very great at it. Um, before we get to the episode, I'd like to again thank our sponsors for this week, Cards Against Humanity, as well as the Chicago Podcast Co-op for all of their continued support. Uh, really cool thing, you can now access all the co-op shows via an aggregated list on iTunes. We have our own page there, so check that out. There's a lot of really cool shows on the uh, in the co-op. Um, if you're a fan of our show, there are a couple things you can do to help us out. First, you can rate and review our show on iTunes. That would be really helpful. Uh, second, since it's almost 2016, we'd love your help putting together our end-of-the-year shows. Uh, we've got one more week to get your nominations in for your favorite stories and songs from the past year. That lets us know what to put on our year-end compilation podcast, and also who to invite back to our live show in December. Uh, you can find that nomination form on nerdalogs.com. Please get your responses in by this Sunday, which is the 29th of November. Thanks so much, guys. That's all I've got for now, so enjoy the show. Uh, so this is a song that was featured in the movie Stranger Than Fiction, and uh, Cleo's going <laughs> to exhibit her mad tambourine skills. I'm playing an instrument! <laughs> <laughs> That's not going to happen. Hi. When I was a young boy, my mama said to me, there's only one girl in the world for you, and she probably lives in Tahiti. 
just to find her Or maybe she's in the Bahamas Where the Caribbean Sea is blue Weeping in a tropical moonlit night Because no one is talking about you are going to take this one, Claire. Yeah, I know. This is a uh, song is Dude's I will, Only. I will say, every since your stories, Dwight and Eric play multiple instruments and sing on like every song, and they expect so little of me. <laughs> <laughs> Guys, Claire's amazing. Claire Freeman. Woo! So, I don't play instruments. You should see her do the shakers. Oh, man. <laughs> that is a sight. Full body experience. So this next song, I've been... I've been trying to, I've been wanting to play it live since I was like seven or eight. Um, so Marky Mark performed it in Boogie Nights, but that's not really important. That's just a backdoor way that I can sneak this song into the show. Bill knows what it is. There's yes. only one way I can introduce this song. Megatron must be stopped, no matter the cost. You got the touch! Done. You never walk, you 
of soundtrack in Transformers the movie. Guys, I am equipped to talk about this. But then I would be shorting our six wonderful speakers who we have coming up in this half. Starting with, from Improvised Star Trek, a great friend, Mr. Sean Kelly. Uh, If you guys wanted to record an all-acoustic version of the Transformers soundtrack, I would buy that album like the the day it came out. Uh, and I have been listening to Dare on repeat for like the last three weeks while I've uh, been at work. Uh, and Eric, I think it's because of a tweet I saw you post. I was like, oh yeah, they have that other song. I should listen to that. Uh, so uh, this is a story with two really important characters. Uh, the first character uh, is my anxiety. Uh, now everyone has at least a little anxiety. A little anxiety is healthy. Uh, A little anxiety is what makes you uh, prepare adequately for a job interview. A little anxiety keeps you from going too fast when you're driving down the highway. A little anxiety keeps you from punching a stranger when they're leaning against a hand pole on the L uh, during rush hour. I don't have a little anxiety. Uh, I have a lot of anxiety. Uh, My anxiety makes me show up to work an hour early every single day because what if the bus I take to work catches fire and I have to walk a couple of miles? Uh, I wouldn't want to be late, and I definitely uh, read a story about a bus that caught on fire one time three years ago. (laughs) 
my anxiety means that when I was 17 and first got my driver's license, I drove in the slowest lane on the highway and never went over the speed limit unless my anxiety made me think I was running late for something, uh, in which case I had a big anxiety fight in my head about whether I was going to speed or not. And when I did speed, I sped a lot uh, or just sped very fast. My anxiety makes me panic when I hear a phone ring. My anxiety makes me avoid people I know on the street instead of saying hello. My anxiety has convinced me that after the next presidential election, the U.S. is going to turn into a Handmaid's Tale-style dystopia. (laughs) My anxiety makes me constantly imagine worst-case scenarios. Generally speaking, I have a lot of anxiety, and generally it's not a good thing. In order to be a functioning person, I normally have to ignore the anxious voice in my head. The other significant character in this story is my wife, Chelsea. Chelsea, if you haven't met her, is a badass. Uh, Chelsea is kind, wickedly intelligent, and figuratively and literally strong. She will feed you, house you, and lend you her ear when you are in need, and then go to the gym and deadlift 250 pounds. (laughs) Chelsea is also a huge nerd who loves Harry Potter so much that when uh, when we went to the Wizarding World of Harry Potter uh, in Florida earlier this year, she cried upon walking in and seeing Diagon Alley uh, imagined in real life. I have a picture. Uh, Chelsea is a badass. She's a nerdy badass. She's also pregnant with our child. Uh, who, for the time being, we are calling Stormageddon the Dark Lady of All. Uh, She'll have a pretty nerdy name when she's born, too, but that's her temporary nerdy name. (laughs) So about two weeks ago, Chelsea and I were getting ready for work in the morning, the same as we do every morning. I had taken a shower, gotten dressed, and started to make coffee and breakfast. Uh, The mornings are very ritualistic for me. I sort of have to do the same thing every morning as someone whose life is predetermined by their anxiety does. Uh, Chelsea was in the bathroom getting ready to shower, uh, when from the bathroom, I heard her say, uh, Sean, I think I have a bloody nose. This is not a regular part of our morning routine. Uh, I opened the door to the bathroom thinking I'd see her with like a little trickle of blood coming down her nose because everybody's nose bleeds every once in a while. Uh, excuse me. Uh, instead, Chelsea was covered in her own blood. Uh, it was actually starting to pool on the bottom of the bathroom floor which uh, was somewhat festive as it was the day before Halloween. Uh, I'm pretty sure this is the sort of thing that would worry anybody, but as a person whose life is ruled by anxiety, I have to tell you my first thought was, our baby is dead. Uh, Fortunately, I ignored that thought, uh, and I checked with Chelsea and I said, are you okay? She replied, I don't know. I went to turn off the stove uh, and came back to find her crumpled on the floor unconscious. Uh, lying in her own blood. So this was when my anxiety really kicked in. Uh, However, this is also when my anxiety gave me superpowers. It was like a switch went off in my head because I spend every waking moment of my life imagining worst-case scenarios that when a worst-case scenario comes along, I was very prepared for it. (laughs) I called 911. I described what had happened, and they sent an ambulance to my apartment. While we waited, I managed to get Chelsea into the shower. She had regained consciousness but was still very woozy and washed the blood off. We put her in some pajamas and got her on the couch. The MTs arrived, and they checked her out. She was still very out of it. They told us we should get her to an emergency room ASAP. They brought her down to the ambulance and set her up. While they attached bags of fluid and whatnot, I emailed my boss and her boss to let them know what was going on. 
uh, or most of what was going on anyway, since we didn't even really know what was going on. Uh, I got in the ambulance, and we went to the the ER. When we got there, the doctors, nurses, and residents gave Chelsea cold packs for her face. Uh, They told us that she had – we – it turned out she had passed out twice and landed on her face both times, smashing her nose and her mouth. Uh, And this was a weird relief because it meant that she hadn't landed on the baby. Uh, They determined that she was dehydrated uh, and that this is what made her pass out, so they hooked up some IV bags and started pumping her full of fluid. We waited as they did EKGs and blood tests and whatnot. They did an ultrasound. Uh, Stormageddon was fine. She even started kicking a little. Chelsea was fine, too. Uh, And after four hours in the ER, we were discharged. We stopped at Jewel and got Gatorade and headed home. Chelsea sat up on the couch while I washed the now-dried blood off the bathroom floor, uh, and I went to work. (laughs) I walked into the office around noon, and my boss said, what the hell are you doing here? Uh, It was about that moment that the anxious part of my brain actually turned off. Uh, Just a little, and I thought, what am I doing here? Uh, I'd been running in worst-case scenario mode all day, uh, and somehow I'd felt a need to get to work. Because if I didn't go to work, even though I'd told them what I was doing, they would probably fire me, right? Uh, Which is, of course, ridiculous. Uh, So I went home and I spent the rest of the day with Chelsea. The thing I want to emphasize here is that anxiety sucks all of the time, but it isn't all bad. Uh, I'm a writer by trade. That's what I do for a living. I write blogs for giant healthcare companies. Uh, uh, I actually wrote an article about what you should do when somebody passes out about a month ago, so that was actually super helpful. (laughs) Uh, And being an overly analytical person, as you are when you suffer from, from anxiety, makes me really good at writing. Uh, It also makes me good at comedy, which is my other thing. Uh, It also turns out that it makes me exactly the guy you want around when a worst-case scenario actually happens. Because when you pass out and smash your face on the ground, I'm the guy with the superpower that you need. Thank you, Sean. That could have been really horrifying, man. Props to you. That's amazing. All right, guys, coming up next to the stage, this is this is really cool. So this next speaker was, like, uh, one of the all-stars of your stories two years ago, and then she moved to Florida. What? Who does that? And she hasn't been on the show since October of 2014, which is a whole calendar year in the podcast. And in real life, I guess. I only keep podcast time, but I guess real-life time is roughly the same. But now she's back in town for a few days, and she decided to come do the show, which is amazing. This is Natasha Samreni. <laughs> God, can you write my resume and, like, get me job interviews? <laughs> I think all of my mom says nice stuff like that. Nice. <laughs> that, and I found out the other day that I have a short neck, apparently. <laughs> like, she tells me honest stuff, too. So <laughs> now I'm just really anxious about everything I'm wearing, <laughs> and I've thrown out all my turtlenecks. <laughs> that's what you do. <laughs> you can't be afraid of uncertainty, he said. You can't just go on with life not taking chances because you're afraid, Natasha. Okay. I am not afraid of uncertainty. I'm afraid of certainty. We all die. We're probably going to break up at some point. And you know what? We've all made a bad decision to dye our hair the wrong shade of red for our skin tones. (laughs) I am afraid of 
the things that everyone does do and will do. Things fall apart. This, this will fall apart too. Do you ever notice the irony of wishing on a star? A falling star. This giant immeasurable ball of gas falls from the sky and we pin hope on the death of a cosmic being that happened years ago. There's no future there and there's no hope in the past. Starlight, star bright, the first star I see tonight. Let me pin my human weakling leaking hope of what might be on the certain tragic fiery demise of that unrelatable cosmic pinhole. We can't bend time. But I saw eight falling stars in the last two weeks. That was super cool. (laughs) I still felt like the first time I did stand-up, and they laughed. And now I had a secret, and this moment was mine. He was my falling ball of cosmic gas, and I put him on a pedestal that he never deserved. But let's not waste any more breath on that disappearance. Fill the space. Empty is pain, and hollow is too loud. In his absence, I've learned to, divers- to diversify. Equation. Um, if I give all of myself to one person, they have power to rip me apart with their certain subtraction. Life, it's like an angry tooth from a never-ready socket. You know, like when you had that one tooth when you were a kid and it was just hanging on by the thread and you would jiggle it because it felt so good, but it sort of hurt and you were weird, (laughs) but you kept doing it and your mom just wanted to tie it to the bathroom door and slam it shut and she was weird, (laughs) but I like it, mom. I'm not ready to part with it yet. Equation, if I spread my love across multiple men, like butter across an English muffin, no one will have too much or enough of my love at any one time to hurt me. I just wanted to refer to nooks and crannies there. So I'm really good at convincing myself of emotional rationalizations, um, and I'm really good at making bad decisions. I've had 30 years to work on it. So this is the fun part. Fun part. Fun part. That's a good one. Fun part. (laughs) Um, Diversify. So the first guy, sweetheart, hippie vegan boy. There's nothing unpredictable about him. He's had the same job since he was 15. He's vegan and he makes sandwiches in a deli. How sweet is that? He opens doors and he pays for lunch. Even his clothes are non-confrontational. Short sleeve, plaid snap shirts and cargo shorts. Roll up a long sleeve collared shirt for once, man. <laughs> um, we make love under the stars because he lives with his dad. And sip kombucha on the beach in his ultralight sleeping bag. <laughs> then there's tall, dark, unpredictable bad boy. If I'm being honest with myself, he looks like a pirate. <laughs> But he has a soft philosophical core. He's the kind of guy who, when I say that I'm going through something and I don't get how it can be like that, he'll take a long drag on his cigarette and respond in his gravelly laugh. Oh, baby girl, you think too much. (laughs) 
so sweet. <laughs> Eckhart Tolle says, I didn't know who Eckhart Tolle was. What is that? Like some hobbit from the Lord of the Rings? <laughs> no, but he's a real romantic. And we make love under the stars mostly because he can't hold down a job or an apartment. <laughs> it's so fun to know that you might end up seeing the sunrise after you fell asleep on the beach from the sunset because you had nowhere else to go. Homeless dudes are so spontaneous. They're sweet. And then, it's true. (laughs) And then there's the Chicago boy. Oh, love him. Because he reminds me of every reason I stayed in Chicago and the one reason I left. He's an actor and a performer. But he has the same name as my first falling star. Maybe that's why I can't let go yet. Maybe that's why I'm not ready to forget. Maybe all three of these guys are some weird masochistic way of hanging on to that tooth that I'm supposed to pull out because I'm supposed to make space for the next one. I've let go, but I'm not ready to forget. Because the reality is, when a star falls, you don't get to choose for only half of it to fall. The whole damn thing drops. You don't get to keep your favorite part. Hopes, dreams, wishes, everything disintegrates in a short, graceful arc. And you have to figure out a new pattern with the remaining stars in the sky. You can't be afraid of uncertainty, Pirate Boy said, dragging on his cigarette. I'm not afraid of uncertainty, I said. I know it's going to happen. I just keep looking up at the sky for when. Thank you. Welcome back. Jeez. Let's not make it a year next time. This is Natasha's first time in the Cards Against Humanity space. We've only been here since March. It's great, right? You like it? Yeah. Thumbs up, yeah. It's baller. It's, it's baller. <laughs> <laughs> Guys, coming up next to the stage, this is uh, another tech wizard for Improvised Star Trek. This is true. He uh, outfitted Wiimotes for their live show to make cool sound effects like phasers and stuff. <laughs> that I don't even know how the fuck you do that. That's amazing. This is Dan Granada. Yeah! So I was laying on the back, uh, in the back of our massive green wood-paneled Ford station wagon looking up at the night sky. And it was Christmas Eve 1988, and we were on the way home from my grandmother's house, but we called it Boucher's house because it was Toledo, Ohio, and like everyone else in Toledo, my grandmother is Polish. <laughs> now, the way I remember it, my dad was the one who started it. He pointed out the window and said, hey, look, it's Rudolph. Do you see him? Now, my sisters and I all pressed our faces to the windows, and sure enough, clear against the black was a gently pulsing point of red light. Now, I was a pretty observant kid, and even at eight, I was regarded as the precocious genius of the family. And I'm fairly certain that I had seen the blinking red light on the top of a radio tower before, but for the life of me, I couldn't see anything below that light that night. And my little heart thrilled in a way usually reserved for the 20 minutes after drinking an entire pitcher of (laughs) Kool-Aid. 
But I wanted confirmation. So I asked Julie, who was five years older than me and generally my second source in such matters. And Julie confirmed the earlier reports. And we have to get home fast, she said, because if we're not asleep by the time Santa gets to our house, he won't deliver any presents. That was it for me. I scrambled to my spot in the back of the car and tried to get started on sleep exactly like a kid on Christmas Eve. Now, I've never had a problem believing and believing hard. (laughs) Tell me a good story or even hand me the pieces of a halfway interesting story and I'm off to Middle Earth or Narnia or Eternia or Thundera or even God help me Hawk Haven satellite base of the Silverhawks. (laughs) Or Crin, for Christ's sakes. There are 190 Dragonlance novels now. Oh, my God. (laughs) I couldn't get enough. I knew this stuff wasn't real, but I wanted it to be. Like Fox Mulder, I wanted to believe. But, as with Agent Mulder's obsession, this immersive imagination has a cost. For one thing, I can't watch horror movies. I got pressured into watching Gremlins at a friend's house one night, and for the next decade I wasn't able to stand the sight of the dark tool closet in the basement. I still can't take the X-Files episode Pusher. And it doesn't matter how bad or implausible a movie is. A year ago, I watched World War Z, and I woke up at 2 a.m. in a full panic attack. Every time I started to nod off, my sleep-deprived brain would cobble together scenarios and whisper, Yeah, but what if? (laughs) Which brings me back to December 1989, a year after the unidentified flying object. Now, Mrs. Welter had left the classroom while we took a quiz, and, of course, the strictly prohibited chatter immediately starts and swiftly turns to Christmas presents. Now, I'm in the back row, silently crushing my times nines. (laughs) Real good at it. When David DeLong reveals that he found his presents and his mom admitted that she put out all the ones from Santa. Now, a bunch of the other kids, the cool kids, chimed in that they had always known that. And my heart started pounding. I said nothing. That night, I lay in bed looking up at the stucco pattern on the ceiling, and I couldn't sleep. I wasn't able to ask my mom about it, not just because I didn't want to know the truth and know for sure that the Nintendo my parents refused to buy me wasn't going to magically show up under the tree. I didn't ask because if it were true... I had just stumbled on a conspiracy. And not for the first time, my mind raced ahead. Forget Mario. What if it were true? There was no Santa, and no one told me. And then I grew up and had kids, and they didn't get any presents because I assumed Santa was bringing them, and I ruined their lives. (laughs) Now, I know as nerd origins go, I had it relatively easy. I never really got beat up or even actively tormented, not as far as I can remember. But I always felt isolated, even, or maybe especially, in crowds. I I think it's the double-edged vorpal sword of an active imagination. We can take ink on paper and create whole mythic landscapes that we know aren't real, but are real in the important place, in our hearts and in our guts, Because those words and those worlds speak to our secret hopes and desires. 
For kids who grew up imagining, no, <laughs> feeling the wind above the peaks of Pern, it's comparatively less difficult to weave a conspiracy narrative set in the here and now from the threads of loneliness and alienation and our 2 a.m. fear that everyone else is in on the joke. If it's gotten any easier, and I honestly don't know if it has, it's likely because I've surrounded myself with people who are as imaginative and as anxiety-ridden as myself. I see myself in them and vice versa, and that's helped me get a feel for when I'm going down the rabbit hole. And more importantly, it makes me feel less alone. I just turned 35 this week, and I'm still jumping into strange blue boxes, and I'm still pretty sure I'm going to fuck up those hypothetical kids. <laughs> Only now I have a wife to help me with both. It turns out the truth is out there. Thank you. Also, happy birthday. When, when was it? Uh, Wednesday. Thanks for celebrating it with us, man. <laughs> I didn't do anything else. <laughs> yeah. Awesome. All right. Coming up next to the stage, we have another newcomer to your stories. Uh, she graduated MFA in poetry at Columbia, which is great. I asked her for an introduction, and this is what her friend Alyssa provided. She said that this next speaker is as though Maria Bamford, the mom from Bobby's World, and Winona Ryder and Beetlejuice banged and had a child. <laughs> Abby Hagler. <laughs> That's a lot. That's a lot for folks <laughs> high expectation um yeah i i this doesn't have a lot to do with stars so i was like oh you got to come up with a title so they'll think it has to do with stars <laughs> so like my first thought was like the fault in our stars so that's what i decided to call this <laughs> um hell is other people Camus said it my last Tinder date wore it on a shirt. <laughs> Being that everyone is somebody's other, we are, each of us, a vision of hell. It seems like online dating really accentuates this point. With apps, it's easy to set ourselves up on near-blind dates any day of the week. They don't require our relatives pressuring us, our friends playing go-between, or somehow ending up with a bunch of crappy free furniture off Craigslist. I suppose this is why online dating lends itself so easily to bad date stories. Most dating stories we hear are about bad dates, but so rarely about being one. But if my last Tinder date shirt was correct, we've all been someone's bad date before. The first time it occurred to me that I was a bad date was also my first OkCupid date. <laughs> Shortly after creating my profile, I set up a date with Andy for the following week. We didn't really talk, but I liked that Andy kept a planner and sported a soft chin that seemed to say, I'm as sensible as a 55-year-old woman's shoes. <laughs> a day or so later, I started one of those 19th century novel-length message exchanges with this guy named Sean, who had a sleeve of Egyptian mythology tattoos, even though my profile specifically stated, please, no one interested in Egyptian mythology. <laughs> It did. <laughs> it's another story. <laughs> I am like you. Boring in the good ways. A total champ of normalcy despite my feelings about ancient Egypt. On a date, I do not down shots of fireball, uncross my legs, and open up about my grandma. I do not carry a sacred Buddhist text from which we might read if all goes well. <laughs> also true stories. Uh, I work at an office. I enjoy talk radio. 
I have two cats and several nice cardigans. I also have this really minutia-based intuition. Like, if I ignore it, I might be slightly inconvenienced on a date with a cult leader. But when I listen, I am pleased, like I was with the book I brought for Date Day with Andy, which I read for 45 whole minutes before texting Sean. I think I just got stood up for my first date. Being fresh from a two-year dating hiatus, I'll admit I was naive of the rule both online and offline dating share. Never talk about dates with other dates. Sean didn't seem to mind, though, offering to keep me company instead. Alone in my bar stool, I celebrated almost as hard as Stella when she finally got her groove back for 30 whole seconds before Andy messaged, Hey, sorry, I fell asleep in my chair. <laughs> Of course you did, sensible one, I smirked. <laughs> and then I read, see you in five, just as he entered, stage left, wearing a goddamn starched business shirt with jeans. We quick hugged and sat down just as Sean was wiping his feet in the doorway, more blue-eyed in person than in pictures. Barstools flew in my hurry to head him off, batting away his arms opened up for our first hug and frantically shushing him. Uh, hi, he said, shh, shh. I replied, listen, and even after I invited him to both storm out and hate me forever, he remained kind, kind as any guy competing with other guys in a dating situation. No, I'm not going to leave or hate you, he grinned. Really? So you want to hang out with me again another time, I asked? No, I mean, I'm staying. <laughs> I'll pretend I'm your friend. Are we sitting over here, he asked, guiding me over to the table with Andy. Before I tell you how this ends, I want to say this about being a hell person. Bad dates are hell, but hell people are not necessarily bad. They're just people who are usually really bad at things, like handling their alcohol or having accessible interest to modern people or listening or being aware of time and space and feelings in general. Fortunately, Sean and Andy had a really great date. <laughs> While I quietly swilled back about 18,000 beers, their conversation flowed. It seemed like they had a million things in common, both having jobs coming from families and having gone to school before. <laughs> you probably already realized that come midnight, Andy went home to his beloved chair. Well, I ended up at my place, drunkenly planking and oddly quiet Sean. In an attempt at conversation, I whispered up his nose, So, would you rather be a tree or a desk <laughs> before he quietly rolled over and went to sleep. You were right if you assumed that I would soon learn what it means to be slow-faded. What you don't know is that years later, I found Sean and I have a mutual friend. When I told her about him, she was honest. Dude, Sean only dates girls who like being tied up for hours until they pee all over themselves. He's got videos online. <laughs> Suddenly, I flashed back to him asking, just before we reached my house, what are you into? To which I replied, uh, I have to say, I'm really into, like, missionary right now. <laughs> 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 Earth opposite, whatever that is, opposite.
it, missionary? Overall, I'm really into having some sex. <laughs> so maybe it wasn't my negligence, but my desire for some regular vanilla that did it. But I'm happy I never knew it then. I had a lot to learn from that date. Four years later, I can say I'm still a hell person. I may not be able to change Camus' definition of hell. I can make no guarantees that my last Tinder date isn't on a date right now wearing that shirt. But I can tell you this. Go on being your hell self. It might be helping you out. And if worries are what keep you up at night, try to count all the bullets you never knew you dodged. Thank you, Abby. That was fantastic. That also was an amazing introduction for our next speaker. Totally unplanned. I'm looking at Facebook because I need to figure out the whole title of this show, which is incredibly long. Our next performer is an incredibly talented woman. Uh, she is currently touring Chicago with a one-woman show entitled Bad Dates or What Killed That Monkey in Indiana Jones Only Makes Me Stronger. This is Eileen Tall. Uh, the story I'm telling tonight is not about Harrison Ford, unfortunately, um, but he's always with us, isn't he? <laughs> uh, so it's the one time in like four months I'm not talking about Harrison Ford, but, but Force Awakens is going to be so good, so we'll all be talking about it. Anyway, maybe I should just talk about Harrison Ford. Anyway, I wrote a thing. Um, it's been ten years. And I still can't tell this story right. It was cold in November of 2005 as I stood in a line outside of Harpo Studios, huddling with Emily, a girl I had only met a few weeks before while on a college mission trip. It was very cold in this line, my first winter in Chicago, and I needed a new coat and some good winter boots. I was an 18-year-old bright-eyed transplant from southern Ohio, so I needed a lot of things. <laughs> we had been waiting in line for 45 minutes, our tickets to the Oprah Winfrey show clutched in our hands. I had never personally subscribed to the cult of Oprah, but being a human raised in the Midwestern suburbs, I understood what she meant to so many people, <laughs> especially to most of the people in this line. <laughs> Dozens of women who all looked the same, white upper middle class with that generically nice mom with a red van haircut. <laughs> it was like looking at my future 25th high school reunion right in the face. These women had handkerchiefs out, already tearing up, whispering with reverence, do you think she's in this building right now? <laughs> the building right next to us? The building I'm touching with my hands right now. <laughs> Emily, who had written into the show and secured our tickets, was breathless with anticipation. Seriously, she was having trouble breathing. Uh, a lady behind us offered her a paper bag to breathe in and out of because she had brought an extra. <laughs> and then the whispers started. Do you think that this episode is? Don't even say the words. Favorite things. Favorite things. Favorite things. <laughs> What's favorite things? I asked innocently. Shh. <laughs> Don't even say the words. I was immediately shushed. You'll jinx it. <sighs> Emily shook her head at my rookie mistake and pulled me aside. 
Every year, Oprah picks out her favorite things and gives them to the audience. It's around Christmas time, so this might be the episode. I mean, it's possible. Don't get your hopes up. We all waited with bated breath, some of us visibly drooling, saliva pooling at our feet like the lions pacing in their cages in the bowels of the Colosseum. We were ravenous, hoping beyond hope that we would walk into the Christmas wonderland of Oprah's favorite things. (laughs) Finally, the doors opened. The crowd swelled into one being, moving as a wave crashing through the hallways of the hallowed studio And I walked into the large, familiar room and into a relatively empty soundstage. Lots of space, a few fake walls, and the couch that had recently been infamously jumped up and down on by Tom Cruise. (laughs) 2005. But no winter wonderland. No magic. No favorite things. It's okay. Fine. I mean, no favorite things, but my worst day at Harpo Studios... Watching the Oprah Winfrey show? Not too shabby. The whispers started up again. She's coming. She's here. Oprah. Oprah's coming. And the madness returned. I tightly held a stranger's hand (laughs) as we both inhaled sharply, awaiting our queen. (laughs) She strode onto the soundstage, and the eruption from my mouth was primal. I screamed along with dozens of others, crying out her name, reaching my hands out to touch her robes. Oprah! Oprah! (laughs) She smiled. I think she smiled right at me. (laughs) And then she turned like that. Move that over there. I didn't approve of that light fixture. What do you think this is, the local news? Can somebody get me some coffee? She stared daggers at the stagehands who cowered out of her path as harried-looking assistants rushed to grab a cappuccino. Oh, my God, I whispered to Emily. Oprah's kind of a bitch. (laughs) Oprah looked as bored as a cliché while a small man stood on his tiptoes to put the finishing touches on her. She looked perfect, like a cake at a bakery so delicately frosted that you almost couldn't bear to eat it. Action. And when the camera clicks on, there she was. Oprah Winfrey, all smiles and nods and, Hello, everybody! The producers crouching off camera signaled for us all to clap louder, but we were all so disoriented and uncomfortable. Okay, said Oprah. I want you to take a good look at this audience today. She was speaking to the moms who would be watching at home later, but I looked anyway. Every single person that you see, she continued, is a real-life American hero. And because of everything that you've done, no one can ever repay you. But I wanted to at least try, and time stopped for a moment. (laughs) With a few of my favorite things! (laughs) The screaming. I assume it was deafening. I can't be sure since I had completely blacked out. (laughs) My own voice was ringing so shrilly in my head I could barely hear the screams of everyone around me. It was like a, a nature documentary of a feeding frenzy. And I was swept up in the hunger. 
the manic joy. It was frightening. I've never experienced anything like it before or since. And when we all calmed down after about ten minutes uh, and the noise died down, Oprah was laughing. I sure got you, she said. You thought I was big and bad and tough and mean. I got you. She, she got me, Oprah. <laughs> she really got me. And just like that, the queen reigned again. My eyes glazed over as she revealed item after item, gift after gift, treasure after treasure. It was insane. Growing up with hand-me-downs, sale racks, five brothers, one sister, in a one-parent income home, it was like a dream. All this stuff. For me. As Emily and I lugged our enormous bags of delights back to campus, we sat in shocked silence like it was the end of the graduate. <laughs> <laughs> A week or so later, the episode aired, and all of the girls who never talked to me in high school posted on my newly created Facebook wall asking me to tell us about a girl, OMG. <laughs> I did not poke them back. <laughs> but what I want to tell you, really, is why I was there in the first place. I had gone down to the southern United States um, just a month after Hurricane Katrina hit. The devastation that I saw down there was overwhelming, disorienting, unreal. It's hard to find a word, uh, but it was. And, and so we helped rebuild what? Oh, um, I mean, I got a lot of things from Oprah. You know, a diamond watch, a Burberry purse, neither of which I've ever used because they just feel too fancy uh, and kind of like they don't even belong to me. Uh, but I went down to the southern United States to help rebuild a school. Uh, the wind and the water had taken it apart brick by brick. This was October, and the kids hadn't been able to start their first day of school. Yeah, I got a lot of stuff from Oprah. Um, <laughs> video iPod, a BlackBerry phone, which was very uh, cool at the time, uh, <laughs> a Sony Vio laptop. But really, uh, the kids, you know, the kids that I was working with, they had seen and been through so much, and they just... I mean, they just wanted to go to school, have some structure. They lined up at the chain link fence that was next to the building, waiting for us to finish clearing out the mold and the debris out of their... Yes, it was very cool to meet Oprah. Um, it was great. But the kid, what else did I get? Uh, well, I got some fun things, like a tub of Garrett's popcorn and some like expensive brownies or something, and um, a pair of Nike shocks, a box DVD set of the Oprah Winfrey show, <laughs> some perfume, some lotion, some fancy soap, a cashmere sweater, the most comfortable robe I've ever had, uh, Ugg boots, a Burberry coat, and a gift certificate for a pair of corduroy pants that I never redeemed. I'll live. But these kids... I want to tell you about the kids. I'm tired of talking about Oprah. I mean, she just rewarded me for spending four days being kind of helpful to people who had lost everything by giving me presents, everything that I could ever want, all the stuff for me. And it's, it's ten years later, and I still can't figure out how to feel about that. I feel weird. Uh, it's weird that it happened the way it happened. I don't feel guilty 
But I sort of do. But it was also the coolest thing that's ever happened to me. But I think I should have done more to help the world after that. I mean, it was almost it's almost too much, too much stuff. But now I'm so poor. I mean, I would love to win a bunch of stuff right now. I should be grateful. I should be more grateful. But I guess it's just it's a weird narrative. I told. I mean, I can't tell the story right. <laughs> but most people don't want to talk about Katrina. They just want to talk about Oprah and ignore the rest of it. Most people don't want to talk about mental illness, to talk about guns, about education, about Black Lives Matter, about Trans Lives Matter, about Yes All Women, about it getting better, about anything that you've seen in the news for the past three or four days or anything that we're going to see later this week. Most people just want to talk about Oprah and the snowflakes and all of the favorite things. But I want to tell you about the kids. This line of kids at the of, at the fence stretched long. They just wanted to go back to school and be normal. And finally, one of our supervisors took a long look out at the long line forming past the baseball fields. Take a break, he said, and we rushed over to them, all of us college kids, not that much older than they. And we played kickball, a massively epic game of kickball. And the kids, these ones that had been through hell and back, they laughed. And they yelled and screamed and laughed, feeling like they got to be kids for a second and not kids in crisis. We threw the game, it seemed like the thing to do. <laughs> and the kids reveled in their victory, running towards the pitcher's mound, jumping up and down and cheering like it was the last four minutes of a 1990s Disney movie. Their manic joy. It was so beautiful. And I've never experienced anything like it before or since. Very thoughtful things happening on this station. I love it. You guys are all wonderful. We only have one speaker left, sadly. He is the captain of Improvised Star Trek, also one of the, the brains behind Hello from the Magic Tavern, which has kind of blown up lately. So stoked for your success on that. Also, always kills it every time he's up here. Can't wait to hear what he has to say. This is Matt Young. Yeah! Uh, I just decided uh, that this story is going to be called... I've got 99 problems, but dropping names isn't one. <laughs> I moved to Chicago in 1997. I started classes in the Chicago comedy community in 2001. The years in between were rough years. I'd just gotten out of college. I didn't know where I was going. I didn't know what I was doing. I'd done some theater, but nothing was clicking. Actually, let me back up. The years between 1974 and 2001 were the fucking worst. <laughs> I was 27 years old, and those 27 years, every single one of them sucked. 
I spent 17 of them in Decatur, Illinois, which you've never... If you've never been to Decatur, Illinois, please do not bother. (laughs) Everything had gone wrong. I was special. I was important. I mattered. I was smarter than everyone in school. I was more charming than everyone in school. I was in special ed classes. uh, Not special ed classes. (laughs) I was in the... uh, <laughs> I was in the gifted classes, the special for special kids. Maybe I wasn't special at classes. Now that I think about it, it was all a lie. <laughs> and in 2001, I went to New York. I visited my friend Mike. Spent uh, about a week there, and one day I went to uh, 30 Rockefeller Center, and I was like, I'm going to try to see Conan. He's still on NBC. Can't get tickets because I didn't know you had to like figure that out beforehand. <laughs> so I spent a couple hours waiting for him to get out of work in the, in the gift shop. And while I'm there, they're playing Saturday Night Live uh, on the TV, like this best of Saturday Night Live stuff. And I'm like, that's what I always wanted to do. I grew up loving My Python, SNL, Laugh-In. Kids in the hall. Like, I was a comedy guy. And I came back and I signed up for classes. Encounter number one. It's the IO 25th anniversary party, which took place, of course, in 2006, 23 years after IO opened. At this point, I had been in a, at that time, long-running show from 2003 to 2006 called World News Tonight, and it was one of the most successful shows of the theater. So, of course, we were not asked to be a participant in this event. (laughs) But I was invited to the after party. That's a nice little thing, right? So I do my regular show at 8 p.m. at the theater. Uh, The actual event is happening downtown in the Chicago Theater. And I go to this party. It, uh, there's a whole debacle around it you can look up if you're interested. But the party started very late. Uh, that's not what this story is about. Uh, this story is about all the people I met that night. <laughs> <laughs> I met Andy Dick. And Andy Dick is exactly who you think he is. He came into the bar like a fucking a shot of bullet out of a shotgun uh, and just like it was a, mo- a monster he just like made everything awful immediately <laughs> I sat at a table with one of my heroes I love cheers I sat at a table with George Went. we both ate wings and did not look at each other <laughs> Back then, I knew uh, Jordan Klepper and Seth Whiteberg. Jordan Klepper is now on The Daily Show. He's also in World News Tonight with me. Uh, Seth Whiteberg is one of the writers for Drunk History. Uh, they were not famous then. And uh, they sat at a table with me and said, we have to go talk to Mike Myers. And, and uh, he's sitting right there. We have to go over to him. I'm like, well, he's talking to Tim Meadows. It seems like they're like in a conversation. Let's just leave them alone. But Jordan and Seth, and I think maybe uh, some couple other people, went over there and said hello to them and chatted to them for, for a second. And they're famous now, and I'm not. So there you go. <laughs> Amy Poehler invited us all up to her uh, her room at the hotel that the bar was in 
for an after party. The party was wrapping up, and it's like, look, everyone's going to Amy's room. Everyone's going to Amy's room. And I, we, as the group of people I was with, we went to this party in this hotel room, and um, you suddenly realize you're at someone else's reunion. <laughs> it's like you went to the Holiday Inn and, like, you know uh, – bumfuck Iowa and it's like oh these people who were friends in the 80s and 90s when they were doing comedy together here are having their reunion and I'm crashing it so we stayed for about five minutes uh, but she's not that tall <laughs> it's 2009 encounter number two I've been doing comedy now for eight years for the last eight years I'm moving to LA in two years every year because I'm special I was in the gifted classes I'm the funniest, I'm the best I should be on TV, I should be in movies everyone loves me so what the fuck is going on but I have all these nerdy tendencies too and this was the only celebrity that I ever met that actually made me nervous I went to C2E2 I stood in line, I paid I'm not sure either. Um, I stood in line. I I paid to get an autograph from Kevin Conroy. Now, some of you have no idea who that is. And the ones of you who do know, know he is fucking Batman. Batman the Animated Series. Batman Beyond, Justice League, Justice League Unlimited, that just this week on io9 was pointed out as being the greatest superhero story ever told in the television medium because it's that fucking good. (laughs) I walked up to him. I'm special. I'm important. I need to have a connection with him, right? So I see him and I... I I, I go, hello, it's it's great to meet you. I'm a huge fan. He goes, who am I signing you to? I go, Matt, my name's Matt. <laughs> I'm I'm also an actor. <laughs> to which he says, Oh, really? He looks up and actually makes eye contact with me. And I'm like, I did it. <laughs> and he goes, Is there a lot of work here in Chicago? And I go, <laughs> No. <laughs> and then I took my head and slunk away. <laughs> Encounter number three. I have been a member of the Improvised Shakespeare Company for the last few years. And in that course of time, uh, they have started doing shows with Patrick Stewart, uh, who, if you aren't familiar with Patrick Stewart, get the fuck out of here. (laughs) He was doing a show with them in Chicago. I was not in this show, but my friend at risk of losing his job with the Improvised Shakespeare Company, told me about it. Told me I could tell nobody. I did not even tell the cast of the Improvised Star Trek that is here tonight until an hour beforehand. I texted him, I go, get to the fucking I.O. Theater tonight. Because I knew that the shit was going to go down if I let the cat out of the bag. I mean, we would have all just been fucking fired. After the show, which was amazing, he's a fucking delight on stage. He's 83 years old and just full of life and energy and can move and is funny uh, because he found this joy in this thing that he never thought he would do. I go backstage. I see my friend Ross, who's just recently moved to L.A., and I give him a hug. I see Martin, my friend who let the cat out of the bag for me. I say hi to him, and then I see him over here. 
just to my right. He's buttoning up his shirt. And I walk over and using the knowledge I had looked up before the night before on the internet, I said, because I wanted to be sure how to address a knight of the realm. I said, Sir Patrick, thank you so much. That was an amazing show. You're thank you. I'm a huge fan. And he said, Oh, uh, thank you very much. And he immediately turned around and looked away from me. And I, I was crushed. I, I was blown away. I was like, uh, no, he has to look at me. I'm special. I'm important. I matter. I'm going to be on TV and I'm going to be famous and everyone's going to know me and love me. And, um, my friend Martin goes, Oh, actually, Patrick, this is, uh, this is Matt. He's another member of the, of the company. And he turned around and his wall dropped. And I realized that's what it means to be famous. When someone you don't know and you don't know what they're doing comes up to you, you have to immediately put up a wall because you don't know what they're after. You don't know what they're doing. Do they have a knife? And he turned around 180 degrees. He was like, oh, Matthew, it was wonderful to meet you, blah, 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 blah. And I chatted with him for a second, a hot second, barely talked to him. But it was great. But I realized then what a terrible thing it must be to have to be that guarded every second of your life. Right now, it's 2015, and the 14 years between 2001 and 2015 have gone by in the blink of an eye, whereas those years between 74 and 2001 were an excruciating, horrible mess. Because in those 14 years, I've been able to do the most wonderful things with talented, beautiful, funny, great people. And none of them were the people I talked about tonight. Because being famous doesn't make you great. It doesn't make you important. It doesn't make you special. You're just a person. What does make you special is learning to slow down and be grateful for the things that you have and the things that are around you and the people that are around you and loving them with all your heart and putting all of your heart into them. And that is why the last 14 years have gone by so fast I am now 41 instead of 27, and I fear how fast the rest of it will go. I'm never going to be on TV. I don't care about that. It doesn't matter. I'm important and special in my own way here right now with the people that are around me. So the next time you're frustrated or upset that you aren't where you're supposed to be, check Look around you, because you probably already are. Thank you. Matt Young. And, and thank, thanks for the Stan Bush cover. Anytime. Oh, my God. He, he wrote the touch, guys. I want to confirm one thing Matt said. This is very important. Kevin Conroy is the best Batman. Christian Bale, Christian Bale, get the fuck out of here. Like, you're fine. You're fine. Whatever. Ooh, I was in the, the Christopher Nolan movies. Kevin Conroy is Batman. Trust me. Yeah. Yeah. So here's our last song of the night. This is going back a little bit older, even older than Stan Bush. Older than the touch. I know. It seems crazy. Um... This was in a movie from like 1955, 56, 57, somewhere along around there. And the song is, I think, named after the movie. And that's all I'm going to tell you, because you all know it. I fucked that chord up. Let's One, try that again. Two, 
come to a party in the county jail. Putting up there, they began to wear. The band was jumping and the door began to swing. You should have heard those knocked up jailbirds sing. Let's rock. proud part of the Chicago Podcast Co-op. If you enjoy your stories, you might also like Roboism. Hosts Alex and Savannah discuss robots and feminism, but mostly robots. You can see more at roboism.fm. This has been a Nerdalogs production. For more on the Nerdalogs and our shows, please go to www.nerdalogs.com. Thank you all. Thank you all. I am Grabbot23548X.